Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Caroline Rose. Caroline is a senior analyst and program head in the Human Security Unit at the Newlands Institute. Her commentary and work on geopolitics and Middle Eastern affairs has been featured in Foreign Policy, The Independent, Al Hura, Lines Magazine, and the Atlantic Council's Mina Source. Our conversation today focuses on her recent New Lines study in the wake of Drawdown, addressing blind spots in Iraq. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I've been a listener of the Arab Digest for quite a while, so I, I really appreciate it. And you guys do excellent work. Thank you. The, the pleasure is, 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 is all ours. Now, Iraq. Since 2003, the U.S. has spent $900 billion, lost 6,500 soldiers. And that's not accounting for the war itself, which comes in at close to $2 trillion. Many in America say so much blood spilled, so much money spent, and they ask for what? And there are many outside America, including its MENA friends and allies, who ask the same question. And they also point to the human cost in Iraq, which is staggering. So let me ask you, was George W. Bush's decision to go to war against Saddam Hussein a blunder? And if so, how big a blunder was it? Certainly. It, it was a blunder, not only for the fact that there was no active weapons of mass destruction program, and also the fact that there was a severe intelligence failure on behalf of U.S. policymakers uh, that created a misread on Iraq and Saddam Hussein among Bush administration officials. Of course, then there's also, you know, the desire to impose American power after 9-11 as a show of force to kind of achieve a demonstration effect. And then, of course, you know, I think a lot of our readers will be familiar with the other factor and incentives for the invasion, which is, uh, you know, protecting oil resources, the uh, influence of the military and industrial complex and et cetera and et cetera. But I think what truly, really makes this a big blunder um, and perhaps one of the most uh, long-term mistakes, policy mistakes the United States has made in the Middle East is that there was really no strategic long-term foresight or strategy put in place in Iraq since 2003. And the problem that this has had, it's, it's kind of been a snowball effect where if there wasn't a long-term strategy in 2003, uh, it created this momentum in Iraq that has, uh, you know, encouraged corruption, it's encouraged sectarian divisions, that has then made it very hard for the U.S. to recalculate, to, uh, you know, to gather and recalibrate a new strategy in Iraq, uh, defense, political, and of course, uh, you know, development oriented. You know, it it failed to put parameters in place and safeguards for Iraq's armed forces, the Iraqi security forces. Uh, so by the time that the U.S. negotiated in 2009 um, the status of forces agreement, which essentially created a roadmap and a blueprint blueprint to withdrawal, and U.S. forces withdrew by two uh, by 2011 in December, the weakness of Iraq's security forces, its political institutions, uh, its political climate enabled the emergence of two primary threats that are uh, really uh, threatening Iraqi sovereignty, which is, of course, um, ISIS, Daesh, and uh, sectarian domineered militias that are aligned with Iran that really undermine Iraq's security landscape and Iraqi political sovereignty. 
And the invasion sowed a lot of seeds of sectarian, and I don't necessarily think they were intentional, um, but the political climate after 2003 and the arrival of U.S. forces it changed the power balance significantly in Iraq, where you see where you saw a lot of Shia centric state building practices um, that homogenized a lot of institutions and rejected uh, many Sunni communities and other, uh, you know, other communities within Iraq. Um, and so it changed the power balance within Iraqi sectarian identities uh, and empowered few. Uh, it rejected some, and that's why you're starting to see a lot of tension between the Sunni and Shia community, um, particularly uh, when uh, ISIS really came on the scene in 2013, 2014, 2015. Yeah, it's a, it's a long and very sorry story. And as you say, America launching that war with really no end game sorted out. But, you know, we are where we are, as the saying goes. America would like to get out of this endless war. Uh, how realistic is that? That is the, the big question. Uh, you know, how does the U.S. withdrawal, how does it withdraw safely? How does it withdraw with the most respect to Iraq's sovereignty and to its security forces? Now, on paper, with the 2018 National Defense Strategy, we should do this. Uh, you know, this is, of course, one of the biggest long-term imperatives for uh, United States defense strategy. And this goes for not just Iraq, but all of the Middle East. So, uh, you know, the U.S. looking to disengage in Syria, looking to disengage, uh, you know, in you know some of our presence in the Gulf and the GCC, look for alternative basing strategies, try to reduce that burden. But, you know, in the short in the short term, the U.S. still has a number of defense imperatives in Iraq, which makes withdrawal very unlikely, at least in the short to medium term. Of course, the first imperative uh, is to counter ISIS and other non-state insurgencies and extremist organizations that are posing an immediate threat to state security, to, uh, you know, human security, to, uh, you know, the governance vacuum that uh, exists in some enclaves, uh, enclaves of Iraq. Uh, the other imperative, of course, is to support Operation Inherent Resolve operations in Syria, uh, a lot of bases in Iraq do that. They serve an intelligence role, a logistics role. Uh, they provide support to some of these operations. And, uh, you know, that really does serve a, a, a really big role for, for the OIR in Syria. Operation Inherent Resolve. And then, of course, there is the unnamed but um, the, the, it's very evident in policy circles, at least, the objective to curtail Iran's Shiite Crescent campaign. Uh, you know, the U.S. sees Iraq as Iran's doorstep. It is there to, of course, keep an eye on ISIS, but also to gather intelligence and to uh, observe some of the practices that IRGC-aligned groups, for example, like Hashad al-Shabi, uh, the popular mobilization forces and factions uh, such as uh, Kateb Hezbollah, KH, um, and other factions within the PMF. 
they're there to observe some of these groups, how they behave, um, what are their weapons uh, systems, how are they operating, how are they targeting U.S. forces and other local governmental forces on the ground, how are they smuggling, uh, you know, their their supplies, how are they working with Cud Force officials, um, things like that. And Iraq is a very active hub for these activities, and it's very important for the U.S. Uh, overall goal to curb the IRGC's um, malign influence in the Levant and the greater Middle East. So um, and especially this is helpful for the U.S. helping uh, collective defense with uh, Israel and some of its GCC allies. Uh, so and, and this is particularly the case as Iran improves its ballistic, ballistic missile arsenal. Um, and its larger uh, missile program. So, uh, you know, th that's one of the main objectives as well uh, for U.S. presence there. So when we ask about, you know, is there going to be an immediate American withdrawal, I don't necessarily see it, especially after the uh, very extended and quick withdrawal process that we observed last year during COVID-19 and after the fallout from the, uh, you know, the killing of Qasem Soleimani, uh, the, the Quds Force commander. And so I think that uh, it, it's a really tough question. And I, I think the Biden administration is grappling with this, but they're they're taking their time because they know that if they enact a very speedy, quick withdrawal, there will be security consequences. Um, there will be ramifications and uh, there will be not only ramifications in Iraq, but there will be consequences in Syria and in the greater Middle East region. OK, well, let's drill down a little bit. Uh, you wrote in, in that excellent New Line study, uh, the Biden administration now inherits a small force posture, a weakened, fragmented ISF, Iraqi security forces, a fragile federal government in Baghdad, and an expanding Iranian footprint. I mean, that is that is a daunting list, and you can understand why Biden is, uh, is being cautious. But, but break that down a little bit more for us to, so we can understand some of the, the problems his administration is facing. Certainly. So the report that I wrote earlier this month, uh, it rings the alarm bell with the Biden administration and the Operation Inherent Resolve uh, more broadly about how the United States has conducted a very speedy withdrawal of over 2,700 uh, personnel in, in, in Iraq. And also it assesses the impact of the transfer of over eight bases in Iraq and the consolidation into urban centers. Now, this some of the strategy I think was was a smart move after the strikes uh, with Iran after the Soleimani fallout. Uh, the United States quickly recognized that uh, many of its bases, they were not properly equipped to defend against Iran ballistic missile attacks. Uh, and I think the the event in January on the Ayn al-Assad base, that was a perfect example. For example, that uh, that strike, it knocked off like the soap dispensers from uh, some of these buildings and the barracks were very, very narrowly. They were narrowly, um, you know, saved from total destruction. Uh, and of course, you know, there were casualties. Uh, a lot of a lot of the personnel on Aina al-Assad, they suffered from head injuries, major head injuries, uh, and they were soon evac'd out of there. 
And so I think that was a big wake-up call for the United States to move to more defendable, defensive locations in Iraq. And a lot of these locations uh, revolve around urban centers. So, for example, in Erbil, uh, around the Erbil International Airport, uh, Baghdad's International Airport or near the Green Zone and uh, Camp Victory Base. So these are, you know, defendable locations uh, that the United States really wanted to at least consolidate to in the short term. So that was a smart strategy. Uh, However, the way it was conducted, as I say in the report, I think that there were some blind spots that at the time the Trump administration didn't necessarily address. And they only viewed this within the very narrow uh, prism of countering Iran uh, and Iran-backed forces rather than the whole picture of what do you, what what purpose do forces serve in Iraq? How do they help the Syrian operation? Uh, you know, of course, this does have to do with countering, you know, Hashad al Shabi um, and 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 other Iran aligned groups. But of course, you know, we're, these forces are also still there to counter ISIS as well. So I outline a few uh, blind spots. One, of course, is transferring bases that were along the Syrian Iraqi border. Uh, most most notably, the Al Qaim base which was very strategically positioned. Uh, and the U.S. transferred millions of dollars of equipment. They transferred it to uh, the international security or the Iraqi security forces, uh, the ISF. But the problem is, is that al Qaim is a very big hotspot for Iran-aligned uh, organizations and militias. Uh, the PMF is very active there, and they're very active along the al Qaim highway. And on top of that, too, when the U.S. transferred uh, the base to ISF units, ISF units have had uh, a very uh, weak experience during COVID-19, particularly after the fallout of Soleimani. Uh, the U.S. halted a number of training opportunities and uh, joint missions and joint operations with the ISF. They narrowed their focus with the uh, a faction of the ISF, which is called the uh, counter uh, the CTS, the Counterterrorism Service. And uh, as a result, the ISF had been weakened severely uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, just because of a lack of training opportunities. Even before 2020, the ISF was struggling to find and fix targets, to uh, conduct operations independently without US operational and logistical support. And so just transferring the space to the ISF uh, tr- giving them millions of dollars of equipment, uh, you know, with with minimal guidance and with minimal observation, uh, I I identified that as a major blind spot. Just because the ISF it, it is already influenced and affected by the PMF, um, the PMF is formally part of Iraq's armed uh, armed forces, and it receives a part of the Iraqi federal budget. Uh, so they're already suffering from kind of competition and and influence and uh, and and a lot of malign activities that affect the ISF. So transferring these bases that was a key blind spot that the U.S. Uh, it failed to really uh, to to look at and to incorporate into its disengagement and consolidation strategy. And then another thing that I identified in the report was a failure with the U.S. to really help Iraq and help the ISF coordinate a better procurement strategy. And of course, this 
also suffered in 2020 because of the pandemic and because the U.S. was very preoccupied with consolidating very, very fast. I mean, in just a matter of months, they 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 withdrew about 2,700 forces. Uh, towards the start of the of the pandemic, towards the beginning of 2020, there was around 5,000 forces in Iraq. Uh, and so now we're, we're left with about 2,500, uh, not counting, of course, contractors that are serving U.S. forces and the coalition in the region. But um, it was a very fast withdrawal. And what the U.S. you know failed to do here was to coordinate a proper procurement strategy with the ISF. And that was also a major blind spot that the U.S. has had for the past few years, but really was exacerbated during COVID-19. Uh, and then... The more larger blind spot was uh, the U.S. operation in Syria, really addressing the question of how is the U.S. going to support the operation in Syria with less spaces along the Iraqi-Syrian border um, in some more rural provinces that really help support uh, the the OIR mission in Syria. Mm, yeah, and, and it's interesting. You mentioned the Soleimani uh, assassination. Of course, the Iraqi PMU head al-Muhandis was killed in that attack, I mean, for Trump, it was a, a propaganda coup, but uh, strategically, was it the right thing to do? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, so Qasem Soleimani, the, the strike took out a very important IRGC general. It saved lives for sure, but Soleimani wasn't that much of a strategic asset to completely shut down the whole Quds Force machine, right? Um, the Iran has such an institutional force in place with the IRGC and the Quds Force uh, to where Soleimani, certainly it was a loss, but the the machine was still operating. And uh, as we can see, uh, a lot of IRGC aligned militias in Iraq are continuing to apply pressure on the U.S., uh, particularly in the wake of the Soleimani strike. Uh, so, you know, they didn't really lose that much operational capacity when uh, Soleimani was murdered. And on top of that, that offered Iran and Shiite militias a rallying point uh, in, in January 2020 and afterward. So, you know, that really did give a really great propaganda narrative uh, for both IRGC and, uh, you know, its respective proxies operating in Iraq. It also then turned Iraq into even more of a battle space between Iran and the United States. It sent the message that the U.S. operation Inherent Resolve was, yes, there to counter ISIS, but it's kind of quiet mission was to counter Iran. And that was clear before. Certainly there were tit for tat strikes, uh, you know, between between the United States forces, the coalition and Iran aligned militias. But after Soleimani, it became a more of a direct, uh, a direct uh, conflict. And, you know, we saw that, especially with the strike on Ayn al-Assad. Uh, so, no, I, I think that that wasn't necessarily a, uh, a necessary move on behalf of the United States. And it certainly made any chance of renegotiating the JCPOA more difficult. Now, of course, I'm sure that was an objective of the Trump administration, but uh, it, it really has made it harder for the Biden administration to approach the negotiating table with Iran with leverage and with credibility um, and with, you know, willingness to to engage in talks. Mm, yes. And as you make that point that the the bases were so vulnerable and uh, the Trump decision didn't 
uh, protect the bases. And of course, he was very dismissive, wasn't he? President Trump, uh, a few headaches, I think is what he referred to, these uh, more than 100 head injuries of service personnel. Um, but look, let's let's move on to Islamic State to Daesh because there is an uptick of attacks in Iraq. We're seeing it in terms of some suicide attacks right in Baghdad. Um, and concern that with Ramadan approaching, there will be more attacks. How big a threat does uh, IS represent and how will their activities determine U.S. Uh, response and strategy? Well, certainly the, I don't want to call it a resurgence of ISIS, but the prolonged engagement and the presence of ISIS uh, in Iraq, it certainly necessitates a long-term presence. It doesn't have to necessarily be of U.S. forces, but a long-term support role uh, from both the United States, NATO, the coalition, uh, to Iraqi forces, because ISIS, they're developing new tactics and new targets. They're less high quality, uh, and they're certainly far off from taking major urban centers. Um, they are seeking to rebuild their networks and some of their operational capacity in both Iraq and Syria, uh, particularly in central Syria. And this is something that you know the U.S. is aware of, and I think the Iraqi security forces, they're aware of. Uh, but, you know, again, you have to have operational capacity to to counter this. And so, you know, when when a congressional report from 2019, uh, you know, arrives and says that the Iraqi security forces can't, quote, find and fix their targets, it's going to be really difficult uh, post U.S. disengagement in Iraq to counter some of these cells and enclaves of ISIS control. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily think we're going to see any anything on the scale of 2017 um, in 2016, where ISIS is, you know, consolidates many territorial gains and has a lot of momentum. But they are going to be a long term uh, threat to governance, to stability, to human security in Iraq. And, you know, certainly, you know, some elements of Iraq's forces have proved effective at countering them. But right now they're very fragmented. And right now uh, the the Iraqi federal government really does not have a lot of agency in controlling these groups. Um, and on top of that, too, you know, there's the divergence between both Erbil and Baghdad, the federal government and the Kurdish regional government. And so, you know, the lack of unity and the lack of consensus on many, many security imperatives, uh, that really concerns me just because ISIS, it, it won't necessarily be a very, very big threat um, that will, uh, you know, threaten all of Iraqi sovereignty all at once. Um, but is, it is going to be a sustained long term a threat that will will threaten uh, different enclaves in different provinces of Iraq all at once. Mm, yes, and uh, ISIS is very effective at exploiting those fissures and and those divisions. But but Iran, that, that's the that's the player that does it best, I think. And in the weeks and months ahead, as uh, President Biden attempts to restart JCPOA plus, I guess we could call it. Do you think Iran will use its militias in Iraq as a pressure tactic to try and force America to give up the sanctions before the talks begin, which is their precondition to returning to uh, compliance? Absolutely. I, they already have uh, in many, in many ways. Uh, you know, we've seen an uptick in uh, Iran-aligned militia attacks shortly after the Biden administration took office. There, of course, there was a, uh, a ceasefire that was forged 
uh, you know, between uh, Tehran and some of these militias um, and the OIR. And, you know, there was like this secret understanding that Iran would back down with the hope that, you know, it could achieve goodwill with the Biden administration. But at the same time, the Biden administration, uh, and I believe rightly, uh, said that they were going to have a tough line and that, you know, sanctions relief wouldn't be an immediate condition on the table. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, then that gave Iran a reason and rationale to then start, uh, you know, increasing pressure on U.S. forces and ISF forces as well. Uh, I do want to say that I think that Iran would have kept up this pressure um, in some shape or form anyway, and it didn't necessarily need to be on U.S. forces directly. But, uh, you know, they've been targeting Iraqi security forces quite frequently, which is not really said enough um, in the policy space, uh, which I think is, especially while the U.S. forces are there, that undermines U.S. security interests and their imperatives in Iraq, at least in the short term. And the U.S. should oppose these attacks as well. Uh, Militias like to conduct IED attacks on uh, coalition and ISF convoys. They like to target their transportation routes. And they've also started to turn to, you know, civilian centers and um, start to target some civilian populations that oppose uh, you know, Iran influence in, in uh, Iran's influence in Iraq. So, uh, you know, that's something to keep an eye on. Iran is still continuing these pressure tactics. It doesn't have to be directly against U.S. forces uh, or your U.S. defensive assets. Um, but, you know, they're also attacking our allies. And that should be that should be noted. And, and, and folks should certainly keep an eye on that, especially in the administration. I think that the recent strategic cooperation agreement between Iran and China will also potentially embolden Iran to keep up the pressure. Um, you know, this is this is an agreement that guarantees 25 years of multi-trillion dollar infrastructure scheme um, in, in, in Iraq or in Iran. Uh, and I think that Tehran may feel a, they've got more space and they have more uh, space to maneuver in countering the United States and Iraq like never before. I think that that will be an economic lifeline for Iran where they can then approach the JCPOA on their own terms um, if they want to. Yeah, and you make that point, don't you, that uh, the U.S. should not get too Iran and Iraq fixated. Uh, You've already mentioned the Chinese and that that huge deal, but Turkey and Russia, they're also uh, worth keeping an eye on, aren't they? They certainly, they certainly are. Uh, you're right. It's it's not just Iran that is seeking uh, a sphere of influence in Iraq. Uh, Turkey, of course, has its Operation Claw Tiger and Claw Eagle ongoing in northern Iraq, where they're seeking to consolidate uh, the PKK and other Kurdish insurgent groups. They're working with the Kurdish regional government, uh, but there has been some escalation over Sinjar province. And, you know, some some signals that Turkey may want to, you know, increase its operational presence there. And that has even attracted uh, Iran-backed groups. It's, it's quite interesting. My colleague, uh, Rasha Alakidi, she and I, we wrote a piece on this, how, uh, you know, there's a whole other security dynamic emerging in the north where uh, Iran-backed groups, Iran um, and, and the PKK, they're starting to align with each other to counter Turkish influence. So, you know, that's certainly something to keep in mind because that will define the relationship between Baghdad and Erbil. 
Um, it will, of course, disrupt security in northern Iraq, um, in the Kurdish region of Iraq. Uh, and it certainly affects uh, Iran-aligned militia behavior. And then I also mentioned in the report as well, uh, you know, China and Russia are also uh, looking to achieve a strategy in Iraq. I don't think it will be nearly as uh, prevalent as the sphere of influence that Turkey and Iran are, are trying to achieve in Iraq. Uh, this mostly would it would take shape in a uh, an arms strategy and an arms uh, relationship with Iraq. Uh, Russia, they're they're very embedded in Syria right now, and I don't think they're necessarily looking to establish the level of influence they have in Iraq like they do in Syria. Uh, they're not looking to get bogged down in another um, very tricky security landscape like like they are in Syria. And uh, China as well. I think China, they're looking at this in um, just very uh, narrow economic terms. They're looking to establish an economic uh, corridor and really uh, move off of the uh, BRI initiative that they've got um, and, uh, and, and look to Iraq to see different commercial and economic opportunities as well as an arms trade there. Uh, but you know, certainly something to keep in mind of, especially as the U.S. looks to uh, prevent any kind of security vacuum or governance vacuum uh, with disengagement. Well, that finally is the question, isn't it? Uh, clearly, America wants out, but America's got to go out in a way that serves both Iraq and American interests. Can that be achieved? Yes, I think I think in the long term it can. Uh, if the U.S. keeps a few goals in mind, which is, I, I think the the U.S. we're a little late to the game, but we have to address why why are we in Iraq, right? What why did we come? Uh, you know, or at least what's the aim now? At least, uh, you know, post two thousand and three, what why do we want to preserve the stability of the security landscape? Why do we want to protect trade routes? Uh, and ultimately comes down to protecting Iraqi sovereignty, ensuring that we leave Iraq better than we found it, or at least not worse than we found it, um, ensuring that the Iraqi security forces have control over ports of entry. They are able to, uh, to a degree, effectively counter rival uh, defense groups and militias, such as the Hashad al-Shabi. They're able to effectively counter uh, state rivals, right, like Iran. Um, they're able to counter insurgent groups that pop up in different enclaves across the country, like ISIS. And, uh, you know, they've got a sound governance structure and they have uh, sound institutions, political institutions, and a good electoral process. And I think that there's a lot to work to be done there. And it's not necessarily just the U.S.'s responsibility, but as a partner and as an occupying force since 2003, uh, the U.S. should play some role in at least supporting the Iraqi federal government, the Kurdish regional government, in trying to effectively build these institutions uh, to allow human security in Iraq to flourish, allow the Iraqi people to uh, live in a more safe any more fair and a less corrupt society, um, and there's a lot to there's a lot of work to be done, and I think those conditions would allow a withdrawal that would not see an emergence of a security vacuum in Iraq. Mm. So, uh, U.S. out of Iraq, but not anytime soon, and when it does leave, 
leaves carefully and cautiously and leaves a a positive legacy as opposed to a legacy of, um, well, destruction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Incremental withdrawal, incremental disengagement. Caroline, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Caroline Rose, a senior analyst at the New Lines Institute. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. For academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on arabdigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.